You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, I pray that each one of you were able to enjoy your Thanksgiving. I know some of you guys traveled. I know a lot of our our church family is still traveling. <coughs> Excuse me. That's not COVID, I promise. Um, we actually got to host this year, which is not something we get to do often. Uh, both my parents, uh, which you guys know, live here locally, and <clears throat> so do Rachel's parents. And so typically we, we, we go to one of theirs for Thanksgiving and, and the rest of the family gathers, but this year we got to gather at our house. And so if you guys have been to our house, uh, we have this massive wooden table that my dad and I made several years ago. And we tried to cram, I think, 18 people around the table, which it almost fit, which was pretty impressive to me. Um, but we sat there, and we, we sat there for several hours after the food was well eaten. Um, a lot of her family, aunts and uncles, we don't get to see very regularly, and so we just got to talk and catch up and, and, and remind each other of of what family is and the blessings that the Lord has given to us. And it was just a, a really sweet time, especially for a family uh, that is coming off of, quite honestly, um, a really sad and difficult season. And so I was, I was preparing for the sermon uh, this week, even after Thanksgiving. I was just thinking back through uh, so many of the words that were spoken over Thanksgiving. And I don't know if, if this is kind of a habit for you guys, but for us in our household on Thanksgiving, we'll send out a whole bunch of text messages and we'll say a lot of prayers and we're really intentional to say out loud to one another the things that we are thankful for, to try and kind of tune our hearts to all of the good blessings and gifts in our lives. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to start this off this morning this way. We call ourselves family, and so we're going to interact like a family, uh, which means at some point in time, someone's going to start uh, and get into an argument with someone else, and someone will be displeased and discontent, and other people will be hopefully content. Uh, but here's what we're going to do. I would love to hear, just as you think back over your own Thanksgiving, what were the things that you were specifically thankful for? What were the things that you were celebrating this Thanksgiving? Let, let, let me hear them. Oh, that's, that's real sad. Family. Excellent. What else? Togetherness. Togetherness. Good. Stuffing. Some people call it dressing. Some people call it stuffing. It doesn't matter. It's delicious. Food. Peace and safety. One of those were my kids. It wasn't the peace and safety. What else? Rest. Absolutely. What else? Cameron. Cameron was thankful for Cameron. I'm thankful for Cameron. There were just, uh, hopefully for you, dozens of really good gifts. Thankfulness for life, for family, for provision, for joy. I, I want you to hear this. Is a shocking grace in our lives. All of those things are a shocking grace 
that we fail to grasp and understand. Let me read for you what, apart from that shocking grace, our lives would be like. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. You shall bruise his heel and he shall bruise your head. To the woman, the Lord God said, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. And then it goes on at the end of Genesis chapter 3. And it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, we we celebrate Thanksgiving, and hopefully our hearts are tuned into the gifts that we have day by day. We celebrate good gifts and joy and peace and rest because it's not what we deserve. What we deserve is a world shattered by sin, ruled by sin and death. In fact, that's the world that we were promised. And so when we celebrate Thanksgiving... When we celebrate our enjoyment of good things, when our joy is complete, when we recognize beauty all around us, what we are proclaiming is that our lives have been caught up in the redemption story of our God. That our lives have not been ruled and reigned over by even sin and death, but instead... God has graciously written us into his story of redemption. It's the Lord reversing what we have done, healing what we have broken. And today we are finishing up the book of Leviticus, which is in it of itself a critical, amazing, beautiful part of that story of redemption. I pray that now, even after a couple months ago, before we started that, that you can see that. That the book of Leviticus is a story of redemption. And as we are closing out this story of redemption in Leviticus, the Lord, He speaks His final words to the people of Israel. He he concludes 
this book. He, he spent the first 25 chapters of Leviticus making a way for sinful people to dwell in the presence of a holy God. He spent the first 25 chapters of Leviticus preparing the people of God to inhabit the promised land as His beloved people. And now He brings it all to a summation, all to a conclusion. He offers them three final truths of how their lives will live out. And it's what I want us to cast our eyes on this morning. Here's the truths that the Lord lays out for Israel. One, living with God is heaven. Living with God is heaven. Two, living apart from God is hell. Living apart from God is hell. And three, God Himself has made clear to us where He desires us to be. God Himself has made clear to us where He desires us to be. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 26. Living with God is heaven. There's a novelist named George Eliot, <coughs> who actually is a woman named Mary Ann Evans, but that's another sermon for another time. Uh, she wrote this uh, in, in one of her novels. It says this, It seems to me that we can never give up longing and wishing while we are still alive. There are certain things that we feel to be beautiful and good, and we must hunger for them. Longing is a primary part of the human experience. It's what drives us. It's what we work towards. It's what, when we fail to get those things that we long for, leads to grief and anger and discontentment and strife. Longing is one of the central drivers of our lives. I remember before uh, we used to, we, we planted Mercy's Door when we were up in the Chicago suburbs. I would drive in, it was about a 20, 25 minute drive uh, to where our church gathered. And when I was preaching, I, I would drive in and I would oftentimes flip o over to like the, the pop radio station. And, and the reason I would flip over to this pop radio station on the way to go and preach is it always immediately connected me to the heart of our people. And let me, let me tell you how. Here's a for instance. Uh, there's a song by a guy named Sam Smith called Stay With Me. Anybody heard that song? Okay, good. Because the people that haven't are either, one, they really love country music, or two, you just don't want to admit to people that like Z1077 is your go-to radio station. Whichever one that is, it's between you and the Lord. You can talk to him later, okay? So this song by Sam Smith is, is heartbreaking. He, he's having a, a one-night stand, and what he's doing is he is confessing that this is not love, that this will not fulfill, and yet he's begging this person to stay with him just so that he can have a little glimmer, a little bit more joy, a little bit more pleasure, 
a little bit more peace, a little bit more rest. And you have this deep heartache that you can hear. And the truth is that, that you and I, as good Christian men and women, may roll our eyes at that song and scoff at it, but the truth is that we live our lives that way. We spend our money that way. We spend our schedule that way, longing, hoping that we can finally get those things that we think will fulfill. It's why I just bought an iPhone 13. Yeah, big league. Because the first 12 iPhones almost fulfilled. But this one's going to do it. It's going to get me there. Scripture tells us that this is true. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is about this longing. It's the story of King Solomon's life journey trying to find contentment and joy, which he cannot. The book of Kings and Chronicles is filled with one ruler after another seeking significance and power and pleasure and safety at any and all costs to them and their people. C.S. Lewis referred to this longing in a German word, Sehnsucht, which is just a great word. But that word means a deep, inconsolable longing, a yearning, intensely missing something, and here's the key, that we've never yet experienced. It's a longing for something that we've never actually even experienced, and Augustine of Hippo tells us what that longing actually is. He tells us this, God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. We live in a fallen world, a world where we long, a world where we lack, a world where we feel deeply discontentment but we are image bearers and creatures that were created not to live in a fallen world, but to live in paradise. We were created to live in the perfection of the garden. We were created to live in shalom, peace, wholeness, perfection, everything as it ought to be. And we know this. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that, that the Lord God has put eternity in our heart. That we know that this world that is broken and passing away is not right, not as it ought to be. As, as, as terrible as it is, sometimes there is a relief in my soul when I get to preach at a funeral. Because at least in that place, all of us get to admit it ought not be that way. We can finally put down the facade of suburbia where our houses are finally big enough and our cars are finally new enough and our bank accounts will finally have enough money and will finally be okay and we get to stare at one another and say this just isn't right. We, you and I, cannot in all of our striving bring this paradise back because this paradise ultimately doesn't hinge on us. It ultimately hinges on living with God, in His presence, under His Lordship, with His protection, His provision, and His goodness. Leviticus is the story of God offering that back to humanity. 
It's the story of God offering Israel to be His people, to dwell in His presence, and to live with His goodness and grace surrounding them. And here, in verses 1 all the way down through verse 14, the Lord God, or through 13, excuse me, describes to Israel the impacts of living in His presence, of being His beloved people, of being underneath of His rule and reign and provision and protection and goodness and grace. And it sounds an awful lot like paradise. It sounds, quite honestly, like heaven. Listen to these blessings that the Lord God says are for Israel if they dwell in relationship underneath of His covenant. Begins in verse 3, if you walk in my statutes, if you observe my commandments, then I will give you your rains in their seasons. The land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, the grape harvest to the time of the sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. As stewards of the earth, we were always meant to work it and keep it. Adam and Eve were given that command in the garden. But when we worked and kept the land, the land was meant to flourish. Life was meant to, was meant to pop up from the soil. Good fruit was meant to be bore, and yet oftentimes that's not the case. Sin brought in a rebellion of the land against us. Famine, lack, Starvation became realities in the world, but the Lord here says that living with Him under His rule and reign in covenant with Him restores the promised land. It restores the land back to how it ought to be. That they would no longer starve or lack as His people. That one harvest would carry them to another harvest, which would carry them to another harvest. That they would eat to the full. Because under Him, the curse of the land is reversed. But that's not all. He goes on in verse 6. He says, I will give you peace in the land. You will lie down and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. One of the impacts of sin is that all of life is lived at war. That seems strong, but the truth is that at any given time, you are either at war with yourself, you are at war with others, or you are always at war with the enemy of your soul. And the truth is, I don't think I would have to press you that hard for you to admit that that's true. Even now, if I asked you the question, what are you wrestling with in your life? What or who are you struggling with or conflicting with? What or who in your life is not right? All of us can answer. And the answer might be the one that you see in the mirror. It might be within your own family or friends or at work. And it might be simply an oppression and struggle that you feel from the enemy that would love for you to find everything but the Lord and joy. But God says that being His people, living underneath of His grace means peace. 
a ceasing of hostility and a victory over our enemies. I need to make a small confession to you this morning. My wife and I watched Downton Abbey. And we just finished the final season. And what's worse is I really enjoy it. Somewhere, I don't know, through, maybe in season three or four, is the culmination of the Great War, World War I. And uh, there's this beautiful scene where they're at home uh, when they get the call that a, uh, a ceasefire has been signed, that a treaty is done, and that the war is finally over, and there is this eruption of jubilation and celebration. Maybe many of you guys have seen uh, pictures of uh, VE Day during uh, World War II when victory over the Nazis were declared and the streets of New York were, were filled and you've seen the iconic picture of the, the soldier or sailor kissing some woman. I don't know who she was. Hopefully he did. Right? And so we know he didn't. Good. Well, that's all right. He did after the kiss. Right? We, we, we know that sense of like celebration, but what I've always found to be disheartening is that you can have one of those days that we mark as one of those ultimate celebration days, and war is never far after. World War I was, was, was followed, right? It was the war to end all wars, the great war. We'll never make that mistake again, but within two decades, twice as many people would die in the next. World War II occurred, and then the Cold War, and the Korean War, and the conflict in Vietnam, and so it goes. But this is a ceasing of hostilities that the Lord God Himself will bring about. And He can keep it. He can bring peace that will last forever. Because it doesn't hinge on the hearts, or the wisdom, or the plans of the people, but it hinges on Him. These covenant blessings continue on. It's not just the, 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 the production of the land and the thriving of provision. It's not just peace, but it's also the thriving of the people. Look at verse 9. The Lord said, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You know, I don't know if you know this, but do not eat of the fruit was not the first command of creation. It was the second. The first command was be fruitful and multiply. It was what the people of God were created for. As his representatives, as his image bearers, to multiply, to fill the earth with his glory. And even in the fall, humanity has multiplied, but no longer as his representatives, but as his enemies. And here the Lord God says, I will restore to you what you were created for. If you are my people, I will make you fruitful and you will once again fill the earth with my presence, with my glory, and with my great joy. And then the culmination of the covenant blessings. Verse 11, the Lord says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. 
If you ever think that I'm trying to force the Scriptures back into Genesis in the story of creation and redemption, read verse 12 for a minute and tell me that the Lord God is not specifically referencing something very clear. What does He say? And I will walk among you. Do we know the story? When did the Lord God last walk amongst His people? In perfection, in the garden. You know, I heard this a long time ago preaching. The Hebrew word for garden that describes Garden of Eden is not primarily a place of lush vegetation. It was a place outside the castle of a king. And it was a place where the king would walk and he would invite his people to come and be with him. The garden was not primarily about a place, it was about a person, it was about the Lord God Himself. And the Lord is saying, you will once again walk with me, I will walk amongst you, you will be my people, I will be your God, I will be with you. The Lord God says, I will restore all that is broken. Finally, you will no longer dwell under the curse, but you will dwell with me. I want you to hear this. These covenant blessings, which is what these are, they're not primarily the results of Israel's good behavior. They're not rewards for doing the right thing. In fact, what they are is the blessings of being in right relationship with the Lord. Here, in the third book of the Bible, the Lord draws something out as a picture for us that looks stunningly like the promise of a new heaven and new earth in Revelation. Even back here. And we know what happens here. Rejection, rebellion, sin, violence, evil. And yet the Lord is already promising that He will bring His people to be with Him. This is a stunning gift from the Lord. He's already said that Israel has done nothing to deserve it. He said that they were a stiff-necked people. He said they were not a great nation. They were the least of all nations. They were a part of the fallen, self-seeking world that had been cursed by sin and death. But the Lord, being gracious, gracious and merciful, set His affections upon them. And he invited them into the blessings of being his people. What Israel had been missing, what we have been missing, what all of humanity have been missing was the gracious personal presence of the Lord in our lives. It's what we all long for, even if we don't know it. It's what we all work for, even if we don't know it. And the Lord God says, If you will enter and stay in my covenant, what you get is paradise, heaven. What you get is exactly what you were created for. Living with God is the very definition of heaven. But that also means that living apart from God is hell. The covenantal blessings are followed by the covenantal curses. They are the impacts 
that will occur if Israel breaks faith with the Lord. If they forsake His commands. If they reject His rule and reign. And these can be tough to stomach, if I'm being honest. I think when we look at them, our propensity is to see a spurned lover or someone in a jealous, a jealous rage. Listen to these words again from the Lord. If you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do my commandments but break my covenant, here they are, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, wasting disease, fever that consumes the eyes, make the heart ache, You will sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You will be struck down by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. You'll flee when none pursues you. In spite of this, if you will not listen to me, I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain. Your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. When we look at these words, it feels like what the Lord is doing is extracting vengeance upon the people, but it's it's deeper than that. This actually is a picture of the people of God fully rejecting God and fully living without him. Uh, Let me unpack that statement for a second. While we live in a fallen world, we still live in one covered by the common grace of God. Uh, Think of it this way. Even after the, 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 the final moments of Adam and Eve in the garden, the Lord was already showing them grace. He said to them, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely what? die, but on the day that they ate of the fruit, did they immediately die? No. The Lord God curses the ground, but He still allows a harvest to come even if it is through pain and suffering. He curses relationships, but He still allows relationships to exist and marriage to go on. He curses childbearing, and yet He still allows people to multiply. Even as Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, the Lord God clothes them in order to cover their shame and their guilt. The Lord has allowed the world to taste what it looks like to be estranged from Him, but it is not void of His goodness and grace. The psalmist tells us this when he says, the Lord God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. It's why Christians and non-Christians can celebrate Thanksgiving and honestly claim that there is good in their lives. We have things like medical advances. There are miraculous healings for believers and non-believers. All of humanity has moments of pleasure, moments of rest. Even for me, there are moments when my college football team finally wins that game that they haven't won in like 11 years. If you don't know, you should. Okay? But the covenantal curses that the Lord God proclaims, 
This is not a world covered still by His common grace. This is a world, a picture of the world absent of His presence totally. Absence of His grace totally. The covenantal curses. If God's people again choose to reject Him and forsake Him, they look like hell. They include illness and disease, loss of life, fear and chaos, strife, war, defeat at the hands of their enemies, loss of provision and food and security. Listen, there are a lot of debates about hell, and and this is not the sermon to get into those, but people discuss its existence and what it actually is and what happens there and if it's temporary or eternal. But let me tell you that even though these may be good debates, here's the core truth about hell. It's ultimately the place that the Lord is not. It's being eternally separated from Him, from His presence from His grace, from His goodness. And there is coming a day where the grace of God will only be poured out on His covenantal people. And it will be fully and eternally poured out on His covenantal people. And those who have rejected Him, who are apart from relationship with Him, they will be utterly cut off. And they will experience a life, a world, an eternity without Him. But notice what the Lord says in these curses. Who chooses them? Israel does. They choose to forsake the Lord. I say this to my kids all the time. When we tell them, here is what is good and here is what will happen if you do not pursue and do what is good. And then it occurs and they're all upset and they're like, I don't understand why I'm grounded or why I can't go here or why I can't do these things. And I'll say to them, I didn't choose this. You did. And then they look at me with a blank stare like I've spoken a foreign language. Right? Israel chose. He says, if you enter into this life, this life apart from me, you will choose it. In one of my favorite books of all time, The Great Divorce, written by C.S. Lewis. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful analogy, kind of creative thinking story of heaven and hell. He says this, in the end, the Lord God will say to all people one of two things. Either people will say to God himself, thy will be done, God, or God will say to people, thy will be done. At the end of all times, we will either say to God, God, thy will be done, I want to be in your presence under your rule and reign for all eternity. Or the Lord Lord God will look at us and say, if you want to be apart from me, then be apart from me. The covenantal curses go on from verse 20, and we haven't even read all of them, but they get worse. Violence, loss of life, starvation, desolation. They're hard to see, hard to look at. But we have fooled ourselves to believe that we can have anything good apart from God who is the source of all good. The Lord God says to all humanity, you can be with me or you can be apart from me. In my presence is the fullness of joy. 
right hand pleasures forevermore. And apart from me, this is what you get. Nothing good. Because he is good. He alone is good. He is the creator and sustainer of all good things. And to be apart from him is to be destroyed. Nothing. I've said this so many times. Close your eyes for two seconds. Now concentrate and try and make your heart beat. You can't. You have no power to do so. Life with God is heaven. And life apart from Him is hell. And finally, God, by His grace, makes clear to us where He desires us to be. It begins in verse 40. The presence of the preceding verses, 14 through 39, the very fact that they exist is horrifying. And, and not primarily because of the impacts or the, the, the strength of the language. It's horrifying that the Lord God would need to include a what if after including the what will be in my presence. Right, think about this for a second. If I said to you, I'm going to give you an offer. Your choice. I will either give you $100,000 or a deadly disease. You choose. Right? The choice that God gives to Israel could not be any more clear. It makes that choice that I just gave you to look like a tough decision that you'll need some deliberation for. And yet the Lord God knows that Israel will forsake his covenantal relationship. And that the covenantal curses will come to bear. Because the truth is, our hearts are wicked. And they are bent not towards the Lord, but away from Him. And we honestly do not know what is good. And so the covenantal curses are not simply superfluous. They're not for nothing. They are there because the Lord God knows that His people, even His chosen people, will reject Him and walk away from Him. But the Lord God does not condemn us to have evil and the evil desires of our heart rule us in the end. Instead, He makes a way. He makes a way through repentance. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts, if they're humbled, if they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. Repentance is an action word. It's from two Greek words, meta and noel. Meta means to change, to change after something. And noel means mind, the inner man. Repentance is a shift of our core disposition, a shift of our affections, a shift of our hearts pointing away from God to pointing them towards God. And it's the Lord saying, if like the prodigal son, you'll finally come to your senses, 
if you'll finally, no matter where you are, see who I am, then I will bring you back to me. Now, repentance doesn't mean that we don't experience the impacts of our sin. We do. God says that Israel will still be exiled. They will still be ruled over by their enemies. They'll still taste the loss of the covenantal blessings, but it does mean that it's God's grace and not our sin that has the final word. It means that just because we have forsaken the Lord, that He will not ultimately forsake us. That perhaps the covenantal curses will be even used for good and drive us towards the Lord in repentance. Here's what this final passage, this invitation to repentance actually means. It means that the Lord desires Israel to be His people. That He has chosen to covenantally tie Himself and His heart to them. And that He desires not to forget or forsake that covenant. He desires to be with, to provide for, to love and care for a messy, rebellious, adulterous people like Israel. If you need a picture of this love, read the book of Hosea. It is truthful and shocking in the lengths that Israel goes to reject and forsake the Lord. And it is shocking and overwhelming the lengths that God goes to bring His rebellious people back to Him. The gift of repentance was to show Israel that the Lord desperately desired to be in relationship with them. He showed them His heart and He gave them a way back to Him. And this isn't just true for Israel. It's true for us as well. Listen to these words of Christ. This is from John chapter 17. This is the high priestly prayer. Some of the final words of Jesus before He heads to the cross, and He says this to the Father. I do not ask only for these, His disciples that He already had, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And he concludes like this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Apart from Christ, we are estranged from the Lord. Apart from Christ, we are awaiting the fulfillment of the covenantal curses of God. The same ones that Israel was subjected to. We are awaiting a world utterly apart from the presence of God. But Christ offers to us the same covenantal blessings 
for all those who would believe and repent. Again, I'll put it another way. He desires us. He wants us to be in relationship with Him. He desires to be with us, to receive the blessings of dwelling with Him forever. The history of Israel is a history of a cycle. A cycle of rebellion and repentance. Rebellion and repentance of curse and blessing and curse and blessing toward the Lord. One king would worship the Lord and one king would reject the Lord. And the next king would worship the Lord and the next king would reject the Lord. What humanity ultimately needed was a way to cement our repentance and to cement our position in covenant relationship with the Lord. And that's what Christ came for. When we read these verses of blessing and curse and an invitation of repentance, we see a foreshadowing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Because Christ not only came to expand the invitation to all who would believe, but Christ came to seal the covenant by His blood. Christ came to take on all of the covenantal curses that we deserved. All of the curses that were due to Israel and all of rebellious humanity on the cross He took upon His shoulders so that we would receive the covenantal blessings for eternity that only He truly deserved. And so for those of us in Christ, we no longer exist in the balance. This passage of uh, if you will, then blessing, but if you won't, then curse is no longer a place that we exist in tension. Instead, now Christ has existed in perfect relationship and perfect submission to the Lord. So if we are in Christ, then forever we are in the place of covenantal blessing. Like, I, maybe I'll say it this way. If you find yourself in Christ this morning, then by God's grace, verses 14 down through 39, they don't exist for you. Those curses are no more for you. You will never hear of them again, and the Lord God will never bring them before you. The journey of Leviticus in Israel is our journey as well. It's a journey into relationship with the Lord. It's a journey into His holy presence. It's a journey into the blessings of the kingdom. But in Christ, our journey is not temporary. It's not contingent. It's not theoretical. It's not fleeting. Instead, it's eternal. It is and will never change again. It's why now I get to every week at mercy's door, sum up the blessings of God in one statement to you. Church, in Christ, forever, eternally, you are loved beyond belief. 
Praise be to Christ for that gracious gift. Pray with me.